This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Obamacare is how nearly half a million Coloradans get health insurance, and more are signing up during open enrollment. But what comes next is unclear, because President-elect Donald Trump and Republicans in Congress want to change the law, known officially as the Affordable Care Act. What do the GOP alternatives look like? We'll put that question shortly to Julie Rovner of Kaiser Health News. First, our own John Daly explains that in Colorado, uncertainty reigns. During the 2016 campaign, candidate Trump said it often. We will be able to immediately repeal and replace Obamacare. Have to do it. Since winning the election, the president-elect has said he might try to preserve some aspects of Obamacare. He suggested that might include medical coverage for people with pre-existing conditions and for adult children living with their parents. Bernice Giels is waiting to see what potential changes to health coverage will mean for her. So the vir- And the virtual, again, is where you go... I guess they're getting you on the computer now. Gills is in the office of Tina Ledesma in Denver, going over her options for 2017. Ledesma is an insurance broker, helping people find the best, most cost-effective coverage. Gills owns a coffee house in Denver with her husband. For years, she couldn't get health insurance. Insurers wouldn't cover her because of a pre-existing condition from a neck injury. Obamacare did me very well, despite I had to pay very high premiums. I'm thankful to have it. At least I was able to get it. Last year, she was paying $600 a month for coverage through Humana. But Humana has dropped out of the state's health exchange. Now Giels is scrambling to find new insurance. She qualifies for reduced rates this year with a federal tax subsidy. Still, she calls the tumultuous changes in insurance crazy. I've got great concerns with health insurance in general. It's outrageous. I don't know what... President-elect Trump plans on doing, but it's chaotic. Her insurance broker, Tina Ledesma, says about half or 600 clients share those concerns. There's nothing we can really do. We kind of just have to take it day by day. There's a tremendous amount of uncertainty. That's Michelle Leake. She's CEO of the nonpartisan Colorado Health Institute. Obamacare cut the state's uninsured rate to a historic low of below 7 percent. But Leek says those federal policies could be undone. That's largely viewed as a good thing to have people insured in some way, shape, or form. And so you'd hate to see that being reversed in any meaningful way. Leek says big questions ahead include what happens to federal payments to state Medicaid programs? What happens to subsidies for people like Bernice Giels to help them afford insurance? What happens to state insurance marketplaces? Amy Stevens is a former Republican state lawmaker, now head of government affairs for a Denver law firm. I don't think now is the time to panic or be concerned in terms of changes coming tomorrow. Stevens, a former House majority leader, says in coming weeks and months, a plan will emerge to give states more power to set health policy. She thinks it'll ease the financial burden of Obamacare and help lower costs for consumers. You had a bridge in, you're going to have to have a bridge out, I believe. And I support the bridge out, and I think that there are ways to phase in, I think, a lot of reforms. One possible federal reform might allow carriers to sell insurance across state lines, which she thinks could help lower costs and give consumers more choice. Stevens thinks the popular guarantee to cover pre-existing conditions will stay, but the requirement to buy insurance might go. Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper, a Democrat, says he suspects Republicans will try to keep parts of the ACA. I think just immediately 
uh, I mean, legally, they can't throw out all the Affordable Care Act on a whim. The governor told CPR's Colorado Matters the state is prepared to adjust despite all the unknowns. We will try to keep as many people insured as possible. Bernice Geals hopes she can afford to stay insured. Coverage under plans purchased for 2017 will continue for people through next year, despite any changes at the federal level. The plan she has found will save her money. Beyond that, she has one tip for President-elect Trump. So I hope he, whatever he does, he includes pre-existing. My sister had cancer. She's in remission now, but she couldn't get health insurance. Before Obamacare passed, you have to insure pre-existing. Giel says she'd love better, more affordable health care under the new administration, but isn't holding her breath. I'm John Daly, CPR News. Okay, to help us understand Republican alternatives to Obamacare, I'm joined now by Julie Rovner, longtime NPR reporter, now senior correspondent at Kaiser Health News, a nonprofit health policy news service. Julie, welcome to the program. Thank you. Nice to be here. I want to say that this has become a hyper-partisan issue, but historically the partisan lines are blurred. I mean, the requirement that everybody buy health insurance was proposed by Republicans in Congress in the 90s. And now... That's... Yeah. Now the individual (laughs) mandate is probably the thing that they most hate about the Affordable Care Act. Well, the the individual mandate, as you point out, um, emerged in actually first in the late 80s, but uh, from some Republican um, uh, sort of health policy wonks. It was adopted by Republicans as an alternative to President, then President Clinton's uh, employer mandate. Uh, and it, it became law for the first time in Massachusetts under then Governor Mitt Romney in 2006. And the Democrats thought, great, this will work. And maybe Republicans will go along with it. So that's where it came from. Um, you're, you're absolutely right. It was a Republican idea in the first place. Uh, And it is, you're also correct, it is the least popular part of the law. But, you know, I should point out that it's a, it was a very complicated law. Uh, People were working on it long before I think Barack Obama even thought about running for president. I mean, there was, you know, if you talk about the long lead up, there was a long lead up to where Congress began on this in 2009, the Republicans haven't had that kind of lead up with this. They have no agreement on on how they would like to replace this. Yeah. And I suppose the fundamental question is, can they repeal it outright immediately? Is that a true possibility? No, actually, they can make a mess of it. They can repeal big chunks of it. They can repeal the unpopular parts of it. But to repeal it uh, entirely would require the same 60 votes that Democrats needed to pass it in the first place. Um, what the Republicans can do instead is use this um, uh, budget procedure, which allows them to avoid a filibuster in the Senate and pass with 51 votes. The problem with that is that everything in that bill has to be budget related. It has to either add to or or subtract from the federal debt. Deficit. So all of the provisions of the law that affect states, things like, you know, it, uh, impacting the state insurance markets, those would not be allowed to be included in that budget bill. They'd have to either do that separately or later or with some kind of replace bill. So it's a bit of a tightrope that the Republicans are facing. Yeah, it sounds a bit like the game Jenga. Uh, that is to say, you can take parts of the law out here and there. And then the question is, Does the law stand? Does it all come crashing down? Um, Let's talk about what Republicans have proposed so far. Do you see a theme to their proposals and, and what that would mean, say, from a consumer's point of view? 
Yeah, there's definitely a theme. And one of the, one of the themes is that the Affordable Care Act made in insurance particularly – we're mostly talking about the individual market, the, the 15 or 20 million people who buy their own insurance, who don't get it on the job and don't get Medicare or Medicaid. Um, so the, 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 the main goal of – or at least the goal that we're talking about of the Affordable Care Act was to fix the individual market. And at the time, as, as we heard in the piece, there were some people who simply couldn't buy insurance. Insurers wouldn't sell to them because they had preexisting conditions because it was such a, a small and fragile market and there weren't that many people in it. And if insurance got too expensive, people wouldn't buy it. So one of the things that the Affordable Care Act did was it made individual insurance much more comprehensive and robust and people like that. But at the same time, that made it more expensive. So what we're seeing now is that people are complaining because the premiums are too high. And for a lot of people, the premiums are too high or the cost sharing is too high. So what a lot of these Republican plans would do is say, well, we'll bring your premiums down. But the way we're going to bring your premiums down is that we're going to have the insurance cover less. And that's kind of a theme across all of them. They have all different ways of doing them. There's there's eight or nine different plans. But the basic idea is that insurance will cost less and that'll be better for younger and healthy people. And it'll be worse for older and sicker people. Younger, healthier people would presumably come into the market if they aren't there now, you're saying, or they're saying, um, because plans will be cheaper. Exactly. Mm -hmm. They won't cover as much, but they'll be cheaper. And that's that's always been the trade-off. How do you find that middle ground between insurance that's basically worth having um, as opposed to insurance that's, you know, that people would like but it's too expensive or insurance that is inexpensive but doesn't cover anything? Among the ideas that Republicans have floated is to replace the mandate that everyone buy insurance coverage with something called continuous coverage, putting the burden on consumers to stay on insurance without requiring that they do so. Uh, That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we already have that to some extent. The, the law that the big health law that people forget that predated the Affordable Care Act was HIPAA in 1996, which we think of as it relates to medical privacy, which right. was only a piece of it. But the main thing, the, the main thing that HIPAA did was actually the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. And the portability part said that if you stay continuously covered in an employer plan, you can then you can't be uh, discriminated against because of pre-existing conditions. So this already exists. The difficulty of saying that you can't buy individual insurance unless you've been continuously covered is that often you become uncovered, particularly from employer insurance, when you lose your job. When you lose your job, you don't have any money to buy insurance. So often there's a gap. And if you can't get back into the market because you've had a gap, because you have a pre-existing condition, then you have a problem. But there's there's definitely more than one way to try to stabilize that individual market by making it available to people who are healthy and to people who are sick. Um, That's one of them. Well, in the plans, uh, for instance, from Speaker Ryan and from Tom Price, he's the Georgia physician and congressman who is the nominee for the Secretary of Health and Human Services, they would create uh, a kind of high-risk pool, wouldn't they, for sick people? Yes, they would bring for the people who were not able to be continuously covered. They they would both bring back high risk pools. The the proposal by Speaker Ryan is considerably more generous. But in fact, high risk pools have been tried. There were a lot of them before the Affordable Care Act, and in fact, there was one during the transition to the Affordable Care Act. And the one thing that they have in common is that they all tend to run out of money, or they have long wait lists. I think Florida had a wait list, you know, that I think it was closed for twenty years at one point. Um, that. And other other places that had high-risk pools, because the people who end up having to go into them are so expensive, is that some of them didn't cover the uh, condition that got you into the pool in the first place. So if you'd had cancer 
and you needed coverage and you went into the high risk pool, it would cover your other health expenses, but it wouldn't cover your cancer for as much as a year. That was that was pretty typical. So no one has found a way to make these high risk pools sort of work financially. And again, it depends how much money there is and how many people need them. But so far, no one has had it uh, has has seen it actually work. And these are a backstop for people who are sick and can't afford to get their continuous coverage. Um, so Trump told the Wall Street Journal recently that he wants Congress to keep the requirement that insurance insurers cover people with pre-existing conditions. He also wants to continue allowing parents insurance to cover their kids through age 26. Are those two rather fundamental things possible if you get rid of some of the less popular parts of Obamacare? Well, covering kids up to age 26 um, is is easy, and everybody had already agreed on that. It was something that Mitt Romney ran on. I've heard some Republicans recently saying it was you know will cost billions of dollars. It doesn't cost billions of dollars. In fact, one of the odd things about letting kids up to 26 stay on their parents' plans is that it keeps those kids out of the individual market where they might help bring down the premium because they're the young and healthy ones. But I'm, that's that's. A fairly de minimis. Um, that was one of the reasons it took effect so fast. Um, on the other hand, pre-existing conditions, that's a different issue. That, as, as we've talked about, you need something. If you're going to let people who are sick into the pool, you have to have some mechanism to get healthy people in, whatever it is, either a mandate or a continuous coverage requirement. There was a requirement that floated around a few years ago about maybe you could tell people, give them one open enrollment, and if they chose not to buy insurance, they wouldn't be able to get back in for five years. There are different ways to, to do that, all of them will, will likely be unpopular. But you can't just say that people with pre-existing conditions can buy insurance uh, and then nobody else and then not have any requirements because otherwise though only the sick people will buy insurance and it won't be financially viable. Right. Because the idea behind the individual mandate was to get the pool with lots of people, healthy and sick. A huge criticism exactly. of Obamacare, of course, has been the increase in the cost of coverage each year. The law has been in effect and Uh, As John reported, one idea from Republicans is to allow insurers to sell across state lines. I've heard this a lot. I'm sure you've heard this proposal a lot, too. Julie Rovner, help us understand what that would do. Well, this this proposal first uh, came around in the in the early two thousand, and it couldn't even get out of a House committee because the insurance industry is mystified by it. State regulators are mystified by it. Why you would in one state want to buy a plan in another state when most plans now have these sort of narrow networks? I'm here in Washington D.C. If I bought a plan in Colorado, it would only probably cover Colorado physicians and hospitals. Um, the other thing is that, in fact, this was made legal um, to some extent in the Affordable Care. Act because they were trying to encourage uh, states that bordered each other to perhaps you know enter into some kind of a compact where there would would be some kind of you know uh, regulatory harmony so you could buy if you lived um, I live in Maryland if I wanted to buy a plan over the river in Virginia that 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 might be workable but it was it was a plan that didn't make a whole lot of sense 15 years ago and it seems to make even less sense now but it's something that Republicans have been saying for a long time. Many of those who got insurance and who could be dropped from it are on Medicaid, the health insurance program for the poor. Republicans talk about giving states more control over who's on Medicaid and what kind of coverage they get. Right now, the feds make most of those decisions. Um, Broadly speaking, Republicans say this would make Medicaid more efficient, bring down costs. Democrats fear it would leave more people uninsured. It seems like a real fight about the soul of Medicaid and also Medicare. Uh, You know, is happening here about what the government's role should be in providing health insurance. 
Well, that's always been that's what makes healthcare partisan is the difference between Republicans and Democrats about the role the federal government should play in healthcare. In fact, I just did a piece this week that the plans for Medicaid and the plans for Medicare are similar in one way, which is that both of them would basically stop what's currently an open-ended entitlement um, in Medicaid. It's to the states and Medicare it's to the beneficiaries a guarantee of of coverage, and they would say in in both cases they would say we're going to continue to pay, but we're not going to continue to pay everything. And, you know, for states, they're saying, we're going to give you a set amount of money. We're going to let you cover whatever, however many people and with whatever benefits you want, but we're not going to give you any more money. In Medicare, they're going to say to beneficiaries, we're going to give you a set amount of money. Um, If you can buy a health insurance plan with that, great. If you can't, you're going to have to pony up the rest on your own. Very briefly, Julie Rovner, do you have some sense of how many people would be covered or not under some of the Republican alternative proposals? Well, most of them aren't legislation, so they haven't been really very well analyzed. But but basically, all of them would cover fewer people than are covered now. And that's going to be one of the difficulties for the Republicans is that do they want to take away coverage from people who currently have it? Uh, and there's there's no plan that I've seen that anybody's done an analysis of that says they're going to cover more people than are covered now. So that's going to be a big issue going forward. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Julie Robner, senior correspondent at Kaiser Health News, a nonprofit news service focused on health policy. And she was on the same beat for 16 years at NPR. We talked about Republican ideas to replace the Affordable Care Act, which Vice President-elect Mike Pence said this week will be, quote, the first thing out of the gate for a new Trump administration. Coming up, we visit a totally reimagined classroom in Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Your physical space down to the chair you sit in can affect your productivity and how easily you pick up information. That philosophy is behind a new push by Denver Public Schools to redesign classrooms. The district is working with an architect who we'll hear from shortly. He designs educational spaces across the country, including a new classroom at High Tech Elementary School in North Denver. CPR's Rachel Esterbrook visited recently, and she joins me. Hi, Rachel. Hey, Ryan. So what's this classroom in North Denver look like? It's really different. You have to throw out what you think of as a classroom. It doesn't have desks in rows. And I had to look around for a few seconds to find a whiteboard where the teacher would stand to run the class in any sort of traditional way. It does have a few desks, but they're on wheels, and they have whiteboards on top of them. Oh, so you can write on the desks? Exactly. Um, On the day I visited, there was class in session. It was parent-teacher conference day. But some kids came in with their parents and they really took to those desks. Those are awesome. It's so cool. What are you drawing? I'm just drawing a roller coaster. What else is in the room? <laughs> well, I'd encourage folks to look at the photos that we put up at CPRnews.org. Um, but it's divided into different areas. So part of the room is painted mint green, and it has mats on the floor where kids can sit and do a lesson over Skype on a big TV screen. Another part of the room has whiteboards on the walls and on the floor, huh. so kids can draw bigger things and they can brainstorm. Um, there are maps on wooden boards that wheel around the room. And I sat down with high tech's principal, Amy Guile, near an area of the room that's painted red. It had a canopy frame, and under the exposed frame was a group of beanbag chairs. We designed this space for this idea, like, kids like to be in small space or box, but we know as teachers we can't be where we can't see them. 
<laughs> so this is like our invisible box. So you have to stay inside the red box while you're problem solving. Problem solving. So this is really about making the physical space line up with certain lessons, it sounds like? Definitely. It's not just about making the room look nice, though that's important. Um, The spaces are meant to facilitate different kinds of learning beyond memorization and note-taking. We designed this space to have like literally color coding, which you can see, so that kids could be working in small groups. So we know for 21st century skills and really in any career, you're working in a team and you really have to be able to come in and collaborate and share ideas collaborate. They call the room the collaboratory. And the idea is that classes from each grade, one through five, will use it at different times for lessons that would work well in that space. Um, The room's also supposed to let teachers group kids by skill levels so they can work on slight variations within the same lesson. You mentioned that you met some parents. What did they think of this space? Yeah, Julie Flippin and Trisha Pacheck, two parents from Stapleton, were there with their girls. Um, They didn't know about the room until they came in for the tour, so they were really surprised. You know, when I first walked in, I thought it was very inspiring. My kids, when they walked in, their faces kind of lit up. I think it's very user-friendly for kids and hands-on. I think for some kids, this would really help them. For some kids, this would be a distraction um, because it'd be too much fun sometimes. But I think for the most part, they would do well in an environment like this. You can hear the kids banging away with markers in the background. Her comment, too much fun, is interesting. I can't help but think how distracted I would have been by those writable desks when I was a kid. (laughs) Yes, I mean, it's on the teacher to keep the kids on track, and that's always the case, but it could be more of a challenge in this environment, at least at first. Um, One Denver Public Schools official told me ultimately he hopes students will take responsibility for having just the right amount of fun. Ultimately, that's the point where we want to get them, where it's they're not following rules because there are negative consequences or because an adult is telling them to do so. They are creating a learning environment that they want to create because they love to learn. Peter Piccolo heads the Innovation Lab at Denver Public Schools. But he acknowledged that without a good teacher, there is a risk of what he called unhealthy chaos in an environment like this. In the elementary school you visited in Denver, Uh, Are they changing other things? Just that one classroom? Well, they've just had that one room totally redesigned. But I wandered into a second grade classroom where the teacher, Elizabeth Babowis, um, showed me all the different kinds of things that kids can sit on in her room. So she has regular chairs, but she also has these big cardboard stools that she says are big enough for kids to sit cross-legged. And they really like that. And a white plastic crate with an inflatable ball that's inside the crate that you sit on. And she has little purple discs that are kind of rubbery, and they call them wobble stools. So, for example, if a kid wants a wobble stool, we talk about why you need the wobble stool. Do you feel like you're very jittery right now? You're ready to fidget? You're going to fall off your chair? And if those are some of the signs you're showing, then it's okay to go get a wobble stool. In another room, I saw what looked like a normal chair, but it had little bike pedals attached to it so kids can get out their nervous energy that way. Um, the teacher, Miss Babowitz, swears by these chairs. She said they really help her students focus and she can teach them about sharing. Because there are only so many to go exactly. around. Exactly. How new is this idea of redesigning classrooms to match up with new skills that kids need to learn? Well, a staffer from the district whom I met at the school, her name's Kelly Brown, she told me that the district is playing catch up with private schools in the city. Is it realistic for public schools to do this on a bigger scale? I mean, what does it cost? It's a great question because I've really been talking about one room out of thousands in Denver and who knows how many classrooms around the state. And this room at high tech cost the district about $30,000. 
But at least in Denver, the idea is to take what the district learned from this one room and its architect, Donish Karani, who we'll hear from in a minute, and implement some of those ideas elsewhere short of a total redesign. I asked Kelly Brown from the district whether every school in Denver Public Schools could do a collaboration room if they wanted to. I would like to think, yes, they can. Um, All you have to do is sit down with a group of teachers, figure out what they need out of the space. And, you know, kind of we all watch HGTV kind of DIY it, I think, you know, the largest changes in this room are the space changes and some of the um, the wide openness of it. So all you need is a teacher and a principal who are willing to commit to it and students who are ready for a change and you can make magic. She said a teacher, a principal, and students. And I heard from her colleague, Mr. Piccolo, that it's also really important to have parents who will demand new kinds of learning and, by extension, a new kind of classroom. Because even when you talk to our more affluent families, moms and dads with advanced degrees, their vision of what a good school is is shaped primarily by what they experienced in circa 1980, circa 1990. And it is a little bit um, alarming when you walk into a school and the teacher's not at the front lecturing and kids are you know, not quiet sitting in rows in their chairs. But you know, the world has changed since 1850, since that model of school was designed. You know, just over the last two decades, the world is quite a bit different, right? And what kids need to know and be able to do is quite a bit different. And that's just going to continue to change, Change indeed. Rachel, thanks so much. You're welcome. Rachel Esterbrook is Colorado Matters Managing Producer. Let's take a quick break and then meet Donish Karani. He's the architect we mentioned who has worked with Denver Public Schools on these new spaces. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Architect Donish Karani has been honored by international groups and the U.S. State Department for his work designing classrooms. Before the break, we heard about his partnership with Denver Public Schools. Now let's hear from the man himself. Donish, welcome to the program. Hi, good morning, Ryan. Thanks for having me. Yeah. How do you decide what's needed in a school environment? Do you study child psychology or development or something? Well... It's more than just that. We absolutely study psychology and how environment affects people, not just children, but the adults that are going to be in the spaces. Um, But we go a step further and we actually talk to the teachers, the students. We work with them and allow them to start designing some of the spaces themselves. We want to make sure that their voices are heard and also who knows what they want better than themselves. So. Can you give me an example of that where a conversation with a student or a teacher helped you refashion a space? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'll give you one example. It's another school in Denver that we worked with. It's Columbine Elementary School. And over there, uh, similar, they wanted a room that would encourage those collaborative moments in project-based learning. So we worked with the teachers and uh, figured out, okay, when students are collaborating uh, they're working in teams. And so on any given team, what are the, the important roles that your children need to need to play when they come into these classes? And so, you know, they said, well, you're going to have a facilitator. You're going to have someone who needs to keep track of time. You're going to need someone who's going to report back to the overall class. You're going to need some contributors and, and a few other roles. And so there's actually an entire wall in that classroom dedicated to these roles. So this idea that when students come in, they're assigned a role for their for that day, for that 
project that they're working on. So if I'm the facilitator today, then there's a facilitator's guide for me to pick up. That's my tool. It's on the wall. It's celebrated. I feel proud to pick that up. If I'm the timekeeper today, there's stopwatches hanging there. Um, If I'm a contributor, there's cue cards to help me contribute to my group. So, you know, without the teachers, we wouldn't have really understood or known exactly what are the different types of roles that you want students to grow into to learn how to play and really contribute to that collaborative effort that they're on. So interesting. As you describe this, it makes a classroom sound like an organism, you know, this kind of like living, breathing thing with different cells. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, again, all of the classrooms and and similar to this idea of an organism, all of the classrooms that we do, all of the learning spaces we do, whether they're in Denver or across the country, they're all different. And they're different because the children in these contexts, in these neighborhoods, in these schools are very different from one another. The teachers have different needs or they have a different vision for how they want to teach. Um, You know, we just did a space in Oakland, California for Google. Uh, It's an after-school program called Code Next, where they're teaching young Black and Latino um, children about computer science and technology. And that entire space is completely different than what you'd see at high-tech elementary. Uh, That space is designed around a constructivist learning model. So everything in the room is meant to inspire children to build and think through making. Um, And so... You know, even something as simple as removing the ceiling tiles so the kids, even if they're dozing off and staring off at the ceiling, they're seeing pipes and ductwork and lights and probably going to end up thinking, wow, you know, this space was built. Like, how is this design? Where's that pipe going? Why is that there? So even the smallest moments that we would take for granted in our environment, they're all designed around this constructivist mindset that they wanted. So, yeah, I mean, they're all organisms in that you know, the children are feeding off of them. The spaces are very different from one another. And they're all designed specifically for the type of learning model and the type of learners that you have in that place. How do you know this works year after year and that it's not just a gimmick or a fad? Sure. No, that, and that's a very valid question, Ryan. Um, we do go back and, you know, we, we study the spaces that we've built. That's very important to us is to make sure, again, like you said, this is not just decorating. This is not just sprucing something up, but it's actually making a tangible impact. Uh, so the high-tech elementary classroom uh, that just opened a month ago, if you go to Columbine Elementary, the classroom we did there, it's been open for a little over a year. And we're hearing stories about the shyest students um, actually now speaking up and taking leadership roles. We're hearing about um, kids walking by the class saying, you know, I wish I could study here. I wish I could learn there. Uh, Teachers telling us, you know, I'm able to do so much more. I'm able to expand my curriculum. I'm able to teach my kids in ways that I couldn't teach them before. Before I was forced to lecture. I was forced to teach them everything using a smart board or a laptop. Now I can teach them in so many different ways and reach so many different children. Um, and, you know, even if you look outside of learning spaces, forget what we're doing, you think about the environment broadly. You think about our homes. You know, mm. I always joke that I could change your family dynamic, Ryan, if you let me come redesign your home. You know, if, I, <laughs> if you let me, you know, r- change the size of your dining table, guaranteed that's going to have some sort of impact or effect on the way your family uh, sits down for dinner. If you let me rearrange 
the bedrooms in your house. Maybe I move the kids' bedrooms closer to you or further away from you. That's going to change the the parent-child relationship. So our environment, it's impacting us all the time, not just in schools. And so, you know, we've looked at that across the board, not just in education. So we know for a fact that, yes, environment does signal to people how to behave or how they should feel. It affects us everything from the lighting, the textures, the sounds, the atmosphere, the vibe that's created. And then also, when you think about schools, what are the different areas you're creating for students for the different types of learning? What are the technologies and tools you're equipping them with? It makes a big difference in the way we go about our day-to-day lives. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and the noted New York architect Donish Karani is with us. He has worked with Denver Public Schools to redesign a few of its classrooms. He does similar work around the world. And I want to go back just for a moment to that shy kid who feels emboldened to speak in a redesigned classroom. That makes so much sense to me, because if you don't have all the desks lined up, you know, as if you were giving a big presentation in front of a formal classroom... I could imagine it being more comfortable to speak up. What would you tell a teacher listening now who doesn't have much in the way of a budget um, about a small change he or she could make to a classroom that might improve the environment? Sure. And actually, to go back to that child, you know, we've actually seen this live at Columbine where, uh, like you said, instead of presenting in front of a class full of chairs facing the front, this shy student actually took these ottoman cubes, these squishy cubes, and just stacked a few of them in front of himself to create a stage, uh, but in a way to feel protected from the audience. And he stood up there and he spoke behind that. So it was amazing to see students even using the space in ways that we didn't even predict. Um, But, you know, to your question, what are some things that teachers can do short of, um, you know, working with an architect? I think Really, the first thing is to just assess how your current space is working. What's working well? What's not working? Um, You know, we were speaking to another teacher in Denver where she said, you know, right now the kids, if I give them an assignment, they're all sitting in desks. And I start at the front of the room and I kind of work my way back and I go to every single desk at a time. But some kids need more help for me than others. And that child might be at the back of the classroom and I might not get to him or her, until it's too late. So we talked with her about actually just putting some stripes on the floor where uh, students, as they progress through an activity or problem, they can kind of move forward and, okay, I'm done with step one, so I'm going to move out of this area into step two. And then once I'm done with step two and I'm ready to finalize this problem or project, I can move to this third area in the room. And she'd be able to visually see which students are already ahead and Ah. which students are behind. Something as simple as demarcating on the floor, okay, the students that are still on the first part of the problem, you're going to stay in this area. She knows to go to those students first. It's just a visual um, cue or signal to her that this is these are the students that need me right now. Um, but, you know, to that point, uh, Rachel mentioned, you know, the, the classroom at high tech, it costs $30,000, uh-huh. which is actually a fraction of what Denver Public Schools and other urban schools spend on classrooms currently. Uh, so if you look here in New York, for example, the School Construction Authority spends about 500 to $600 a square foot on school construction. In Denver, a little bit less, around 200 to $400, which means they're spending about $100 a square foot on the interior. So 
um, we were able to do it for about $30. And so, again, you could see that not only are students being involved, teachers are involved, uh, the design is better, but it's also um, more economical this way as well. How much of this is just about a good, comfortable space, light, uh, pleasing colors, the, I guess really the basics of architecture? Yeah, that's that's actually the first step. So um, we look at a handful of things. The, the first thing we look at is basic needs. So for us, uh, is it clean, healthy, safe, functional? So you named it, you know, uh, is the lighting adequate? Uh, do they have access to the outdoors? Is there the quality of the air good, the thermal comfort, the materials? Um, and so that makes a big difference. And actually, if you look at schools across the U.S., um, you know, we've seen things pop up in Detroit recently, um, last year. Even basic needs is a challenge for many of our schools. Yeah. But if you're going to rebuild and redesign, why stop there, right? Why not understand what makes this school unique? What are the types of ways that these teachers are trying to teach? And let's add in that pedagogical component. Let's understand their philosophy as a school and make sure because, you know, like I said earlier, for example, with the Code Next program that Google's running, they want kids to really fall into this constructivist mindset. At High Tech Elementary, it was all about collaboration. Yeah. So depending on what the school wants, if you're going to upgrade the basic needs, you might as well make sure it's aligned. So it's it's the same as me saying, Ryan, uh, you know, I get it. You need a new house, so we're going to just buy you this house over here versus, hey, we're going to spend the money to get you a new house. We might as well tailor it to you and your family and what you guys like. Maybe you guys want an extra large uh, living room because that's where you spend more time than anywhere in the house. And so, so the idea is if we understand you. Yeah, you're already taking the first step. Why not take the further steps as well beyond just the, the sort of life and comfort? Donish, thank you so much for being with us. And I have to say, I desperately want a desk now that I can write on. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, if you stop by uh, High Tech, you can grab one there. Okay. And you can see photos for having me, of that at cprnews.org. That's Donish Karani. He's a New York architect and worked with Denver Public Schools to redesign a few of its classrooms. Does similar work around the country. Still to come, things Avalanche fans should know and do before they die. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The biggest hockey fan I know is my friend Grant Beery. He loves the Colorado Avalanche, even though they're last in their division. I thought of Grant right away when a new book came across my desk called 100 Things Avalanche Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. The author is Adrian Dater, lead NHL writer with Bleacher Report, former staff writer at the Denver Post. And I figured if Adrian could tell Grant something Grant didn't know about the Avs, then he's met a high bar. So Adrian and Grant, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks. Grant, you're a season ticket holder. You have collected 30-plus hockey jerseys. Half of them are Avs jerseys. How did you become an Avs fan? Really started, you know, the first year they were in town. My dad took me to a a Mighty Ducks game when they were playing here at Old McNichols Arena back in the day. Kind of thinking, you know, oh, they like the movie. Let's let's go ahead and take the kids to the game. And I would tell you, before the end of the game, I was a diehard Avalanche fan because, you know, it's it's our team. <laughs> it was our team. And Adrian, you trace the roots of the Avalanche in this book. The team came to Denver from Quebec City in 95. Is that right? How did the Nordiques land here? Yeah. Um, 
I was a part-time writer at the Post making, uh, you know, freelance money. And uh, one day I got a tip. I was in the office. I got a tip from somebody who will remain my sort of deep throat hockey source. <laughs> and he said, uh, you might want to check out that uh, the owners of the Denver Nuggets are looking to buy the Quebec Nordiques. And uh, so I did. I found I got enough confirmation to write the story the next day, the front page story uh, that basically said what would happen, the avalanche the Nordiques are going to be sold to Denver. That was on page one. Page six or something in the same paper, I had a DU hockey advance story for a game I was going to cover that very night, and also a high school swimming story from uh, from something else. So I had three stories. One of them turned out to be a little bit bigger in my career than the other two. Than, than the others. How did that first season in Denver go for the Nordiques turned avalanche? Well, it went pretty well. Uh, Stanley Cup. <laughs> yeah. First year. Uh not bad. They won the Stanley Cup and uh, became an instant hit in Denver right away, obviously. Patrick Waugh, Joe Sackick, Peter Forsberg uh, became the hottest ticket in town for many, many years. Yeah, you certainly can't talk about the Avs without mentioning Joe Sackick, the franchise's all-time leading scorer. He played his entire 20-year career for the same team. He's GM today. What does Sackick mean to a fan like you, Grant? Well, Kind of what you said. He's played for the same team for you know, his entire career. That in the advent of sports these days, where players are going everywhere, signing money here and there, every you know, kind of chasing that that glory. You you had somebody a stalwart like Sackick that you could kind of look up to and be like, all right, this is our guy. This is this is somebody who represents Colorado and Colorado sports. Adrian, he's known as Quoteless Joe for mm. giving blah answers to the press. But you write about some of his more colorful attributes, his trophy room, mm. for instance. Yeah, I got the chance to go into Joe's house once when he was retiring. He let me come in and, you know, I did a real long feature on him. And first of all, the house is amazing. Like, it's the nicest house I've ever been in my life. Um, but the nicest, the very nicest thing was... The trophy room. So you walk into the house downstairs to the left. There's this trophy room, and it's got like a three, four hundred jerseys of great players that he's had signed. It's on like a dry cleaning rack that you can <laughs> manually switch around. <laughs> and then there's uh, you know gold medal from 2002 Olympics here. There's uh, Stanley Cup, you know Conn Smythe trophy here, uh, all behind glass. There's a cigar room in the back, a little wine room, wine cellar. It's, it's want, like a wing of the Hall there. of Fame. <laughs> yeah. I, and it's amazing. Joe Sackick did wrist curls as a kid to make up for his smaller size? Well, he wasn't big. He wasn't considered a big player. Uh, so, yeah, one of the things he did a lot was, was wrist curls. And he, he became known for his wrist shot. It was so strong. It became as good as some people's slap shots. Um, so, yeah, he... He he's a you know a stocky guy, a muscular guy, but you looked at his forearms and it was like Popeye, you know. So uh. these words from actor Harrison Ford may have kept Sackick on the team in 1997. Get off my plane, Grant Berry. Did you know this story? I did not. This is one of the few that um, it was in the book. I mean, there's a couple, but this was super fascinating to me about how. 
basically a movie is the reason Joe Sackick stayed in town. Yeah, what's the story, Adrian? Well, briefly, the Avalanche uh, got a predatory offer from the New York Rangers for Joe Sackick, the captain, and it was a fifty. It was a three-year, twenty-one million dollar offer with fifteen million dollars due up front as a signing bonus, which the Rangers knew the cash-strapped ownership at the time really couldn't afford. So they had a week to match the offer. Uh, and for a few days, they were really scrambling around. Where are we going to get the money? Where are we going to get the money? Well, it just so happened that at the time, the owner of the uh, Avs had a subsidiary called Beacon Pictures. And they one of their first movies was going to be a movie called Air Force One. And the movie came out just a couple weeks before uh, in the summer. And nobody knew if it was going to be a hit or not. You know, even Harrison Ford, you know, the advanced reviews were not great to this <laughs> film. But it became a monster summer hit. And because of that cash flow that was coming in from their movie, they then had the cash flow they knew would keep keep coming to be able to afford that $15 million and keep not only the sacking in town, but there were some rumors that maybe the whole franchise was going to be in trouble again with, with some of the money issues that they had. So Harrison Ford movie, Air Force One, essentially saved – not only Joe Sackick, but possibly the Avalanche. Possibly the Avalanche as a team. So in 95, which is the year the Nordiques come to Denver and become the Avalanche, uh, the team acquires goalie Patrick Waugh. Blockbuster trade, as you write, Adrian. Uh, Grant, did you know that Waugh was so superstitious? That's something that came out in this book. It's it's definitely something that we, you know, as a fan, you knew about. I mean, okay. he, was, he was my favorite player growing up, so I tried to know as much about him, but... Uh, Definitely not to the level that I read about, you know, <laughs> that Adrian wrote. <laughs> Eating steak and peas before every game. Every, before every game, steak and peas. Um, he he had a lot of little quirks, too. He, uh, For instance, he was a diehard fan of the movie uh, show Murder, She Wrote. And okay. <laughs> this was back in the day before anything was on demand. So he would have tapes sent to him on the road of, of Murder, She Wrote. So he could find, and he'd have a VCR that... He'd have rented for the hotel rooms and stuff, and then he'd catch up on Murder, She Wrote while he was on the road. He was also very scared of things all the time. He would actually be scared of what would happen in, in Murder, She Wrote sometimes, they say, and um, hide under the covers and stuff. No joke. That's what I've heard. He's very well, Angela Lansbury. She's terrified. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Wah became head coach, abruptly left the team. Sackick, as we say, remains the team's GM. Is Wah still part of the F's family? As uh, far as you know? No. Just no. not? Okay. Clean break there. Yeah. Probably some bad blood right now. Um, yeah, unfortunate, but that's 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 Patrick Waugh in a nutshell too. Very, very mercurial, and um, you know, setting it can be high strung, and he goes to the beat of Patrick Waugh, the drum of Patrick Waugh. So Grant, this year's team has the second worst home record in the NHL this season, and hasn't had real success in years. Are you losing faith? No, I, I would say that that's not really I, not something that you would do as a, as a, a true fan, as, uh-huh. as somebody would say. I mean, kind of, you know, I grew up watching my dad be such a huge Broncos fan. I think I learned to kind of get through the tough years through him <laughs> because it definitely, definitely it was that way for the Broncos for quite a few years. So I, I wouldn't say I'm losing faith. Well, you have a question, a million-dollar question for Adrian Grant. What's it going to take for this team to, to win the Stanley Cup again? Uh, well— Seriously, they need to figure out a way to stop the puck going in the net all the time. They've been a very <laughs> poor defensive team the last few years. The real the issue with this team has been just a very, very poor defense. Uh, ironically, now 
They have a lot of problem putting the puck in the net, too. They're the second lowest scoring team in the NHL right now. Um, actually, I think that's actually tied for last now. Uh, so, you know, the thing with the Avalanche is they were so they, – they had a once-in-a-lifetime team dropped in their laps. Something that if hockey teams have been around for 60, 70 years never have happened to them. Avalanche fans are now experiencing what so many other fan bases have had. Uh, and it's, you know, it can take a long time to dig out of this stuff. Uh, and that's just unfortunate the way it goes. And, and it's going to take a while still before that Stanley Cup returns, I'm afraid, Grant. Yeah. But, Grant, it sounds like you're a patient dude. Thanks for being with us, both Thank of you. you. Thank, Thank you. you. So Adrian Dater's new book is called 100 Things Avalanche Fans Should Know and Do Before They Die. We read it with Av's super fan, Grant Beery, a friend of mine who lives in Denver. At CPRnews.org, you can read an excerpt about how the team was almost called the Rocky Mountain Extreme. Also online, a photo of Grant in one of his many hockey jerseys atop a Zamboni. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. CPR News.